Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Lily Brett, who's dropped by today to talk about her new book, Lola Bensky. Lily, welcome. Thank you. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you please to read to us a little from Lola Bensky? Okay, I'll read a small excerpt from the first chapter. Lola Bensky was sitting on an uncomfortably high stool. She could feel the nylon threads of her fishnet tights digging into her thighs. She had put a wad of tissues underneath the fishnet on the inside of each of her thighs. The tissues which were supposed to stop her thighs rubbing against each other and chafing her skin had shredded and now her flesh poked through the mesh in small, shiny, tightly packed pink squares. She tried to move into a more comfortable position. She didn't like sitting on stools and she didn't like heights. She noticed a sprinkling of disintegrated tissue on the floor below her left foot. She decided to sit very still and to go on a diet. Jimi Hendrix, who was sitting on a slightly lower stool, looked at her. His face had a quietness about it. There was no sign of the Jimi Hendrix who, just 30 minutes earlier, had been humping the microphone stand on stage and fucking his guitar. There was no sign of the Jimi Hendrix whose guitar had whined and moaned and shuddered in a frenzied carnal staccato with his body. Jimi Hendrix removed the brightly coloured patterned silk scarf that was tied around his neck. Are you comfortable, he said to Lola Bensky in a soft, improbably polite voice. Oh yes, she said, looking at him and trying to separate her thighs. She thought that Jimi Hendrix had probably never had to go on a diet. She thought he was probably naturally lean. She had never been lean. She had a photograph of herself in the displaced persons camp in Germany where she was born. She was three months old in the photograph and she was chubby. How could a baby born in a DP camp be chubby? Lola was sure that not many of the camp's other inmates mostly Jews who had survived Nazi death camps, were chubby. Lola was hot. Jimi Hendrix's dressing room, the room they were in, was small and overheated, and Lola was overdressed. It was winter in London. Lola wasn't used to cold winters. She'd grown up in Melbourne, Australia, where winter was barely distinguishable from spring or autumn. She looked at the questions she had prepared. You're not going to ask me what my gimmick is, Jimi Hendrix said to her. No, said Lola. The question threw her a bit. She didn't know he had a gimmick. Maybe someone had suggested that playing his guitar with his teeth was a gimmick, or flicking out his tongue, or fondling the neck of his guitar. She didn't know. Lola liked accumulating information about people, she liked listing what she knew about their lives. She found it oddly soothing. She had her own lists too, lists of her mother and father's dead relatives. Rina Bensky, Lola's mother, had had four brothers, three sisters, a mother and father, 
aunts, uncles, cousins, nephews and nieces. By the end of the war, everyone Renyabensky was related to was dead, all murdered. Lola's father's mother and father and three brothers and a sister were also all murdered. Those lists bothered Lola. Lola preferred to list the various diets she was thinking about. She had just given up on a Mars bar diet she had tried for several days. All the Mars bars you could eat and nothing else. On her list of diets, she had called it the Get Bored Diet. The basic principle was that the Mars bars would soon lose their appeal and she'd soon be eating very few of them. In fact, she'd be eating very little. It hadn't worked. The egg and cucumber diet was on the top of her new list of diets. Lola didn't have time to feel sad. She was too busy being cheerful or planning her interviews or thinking about food. Decades later, Lola Bensky would not be quite as immune to the lists of the dead. The dead would adhere themselves to her, but she didn't yet know any of this. She was 19. Lola had been in London for two months. She had already interviewed the small faces, the kinks, the hollies, Cliff Richard, Jean Pitney, Spencer Davis, Olivia Newton-John and the Bee Gees. Olivia Newton-John and the Bee Gees were easy interviews to get as she had interviewed them before for Rock Out, the newspaper she worked for in Australia. Lola's tape recorder was on her lap. She looked down to make sure it was working. Jimi Hendrix licked his lips. His mouth didn't look anything like the mobile, worryingly lascivious mouth she'd had to avert her eyes from during his performance. Are you religious, Lola asked Jimi Hendrix. Lola envied people who were religious. She felt that being religious would be like being in a very large club and always having someone to talk to. Not God just another member of the club. Lola's mother, who had been brought up in a very religious home, wouldn't, after the war, tolerate any notion of religion. When Lola now and then asked if she could go to synagogue, mostly on high holy days, Renya used to say, if you did see what I did see, you would not even talk about religion. You only want to go to synagogue to meet boys, Renya would add in the tone of voice that suggested that meeting boys was akin to meeting your drug dealer or hanging out with a serial killer. Religion was a subject that couldn't be discussed in the Bensky household. There is no God, Renyabensky would say over and over again. There is no God. She would say this in the middle of washing the dishes or in the backyard hanging out the clothes or just sitting at the kitchen table by herself. Am I religious, Jimi Hendrix said. I don't believe in religion. I went to church a few times when I was a kid, but I got driven out because my clothes were too poor. What do you believe in, said Lola. I don't believe in heaven or hell, he said. I don't know if there is a God. Ben Yabensky could have told him the answer to that, Lola thought. We all have our beliefs. Jimi Hendrix said slowly as though he could hear Lola's thoughts. I try to believe in myself. If there is a God and God made us, then believing in myself means that I believe in God. 
I don't believe in God, Lola said. I wish I did. I hear you, man, Jimi Hendrix said. Lola thought he probably did. Music is my religion, Jimi Hendrix said. I play to go inside the soul of people. Lola knew what it felt like to want to go inside people's souls. She used to wish she could press herself right into people she liked so that she could be as close to them as it was possible to be. She wished she could get past the barriers of clothes and showers and clean hair and good manners. Are you comfortable? Jimi Hendrix asked her, taking a packet of gum out of his pocket. Oh yes, I'm very comfortable, Lola said. You haven't moved at all, he said. She was surprised. She hadn't realised that he had been observing her that carefully. Most rock stars were so absorbed in themselves that you could have had a nervous breakdown or been dancing a jig and they wouldn't have noticed. That's it. Well, that's, thank you for reading that, Lily. Um, that, that so many of the themes of the book come up in that passage, which is, of course, right from the start. Um, one of the things that really strikes me in that passage and through the book is this notion almost a kind of voyeurism. Um, and, and that goes part and parcel with interviewing, I think. But this this idea of getting into people's souls. Do you, did you um, feel that the reader, in effect, because we learn so much more about Lola than we learn being the protagonist, than we learn about all these wonderful people she's interviewing, did you feel in a way that we're almost put in that voyeur position with Lola? No, no, um, I didn't feel that at all. I mean, I think that when I write, what I try very, very hard to do is to write from my heart and hope that I connect into somebody else's. I don't know whose, but I try to write as truthfully as I can and as honestly as I can. I don't think of it as voyeuristic. I think knowing who we are and who each other is is a very, very crucial part of being a human being. It's far too easy to imagine that someone else is very different from you. And it's far too easy and it's very dangerous if you decide that someone else, you know, because of their colour of their skin or their religious beliefs or their sexual orientation or even the music they play is uh, possibly not quite as human as you. So um, voyeuristic is the very last way I look at it. I mean, I grew up with a mother who said over and over again that I would never know what people were capable of. And I found that a very frightening thought, but I knew that she really did know. And so I always wanted to know who people really were. So this is about looking into the soul, as as Hendrix puts it, um, to... Using art, perhaps, to get into to people's souls. Yes, using his music. And I think I understand exactly what Jimi Hendrix was doing because that's, that's where we all need to be in each other's souls. I mean, it sounds a bit new age, but I think it's true. Mm. There's an interesting contrast going on as well, right through that whole passage and, again, through the book, I think, between the superficial and the depth. I mean, there's this, you know, this horrible memory, background, tragedy out of which uh, Lola comes. But there's also the, you know, the whole 
her whole sense of what she's looking like, the clothes, the you know, the, the clean hair, the the diets. Yes, and I'm not sure that that's superficial because really it's Lola's battle with her body. Mm. And I think it's a battle that many, many women have. You know, I think that body size and body image is such a huge issue for almost any any woman that I've met, you know, certainly women in the Western world, and I think it's spreading even further than that. You know, a guy goes into a restaurant and he chooses what he wants to eat, he enjoys his meal and he leaves. A woman goes in, she reads the menu and is in agony. Should she have this? Should she have that? Oh, no, she has this. You know, the consequences of what you eat and what you look like are something, it seems, is inescapable if you're female. Mm. In Lola's case, though, do you think that food in itself is symbolic? That it, you know, on the one hand... Um, her lists of diets and her eating does, as she herself admits, kind of blocks out the, the underlying tragedy. Sure. Mm. A- absolutely. I mean... And on, on the other hand, it's comforting. <laughs> it's... it's what, what did you say? It's, I, it's comforting. It, it um, oh, you know, yes. if, well, if you're well, being fed, you're not being starved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, also. Yes, and I guess that also, you know, you choose your whatever neurotic. I mean, I hate the word neurotic. You choose whatever symptom you have, and after a while it becomes familiar and comforting. You know, I mean, food is comforting in, in itself, and it should be, and it should also be really enjoyable. But I think that, you know, it is certainly was for Lola very, it was, it was self-destructive in a way. I mean, she was... Yes. Go on. I mean, we, I think that it's very hard to grow up without being self-destructive. I think it might be part and parcel of growing up. But yes. Lola, Lola didn't see the price until she was much older. Mm. Do you feel it's part of her character development, her her character arc, if you like, to you know to to come to terms with this? Yeah, although I don't think in terms of character arc and character development, you know, I'm I'm a very instinctive writer. I I don't think about sort of the technicalities of things. I I, I have a natural rhythm, and I know when I go out of that rhythm. You know, but it is part of it. What you see in the novel is you see her development. You know, you see the analyst she sees, the, the quite a bit of the suffering that she has to live through before she can experience happiness and freedom, which almost are dangerous for her. Which makes her sound sort of a bit morose. She isn't. She's not morose and she's not burdened. Yes, she does have a, a, a quite a draw to some of the famous uh, rock stars that she interviews as well. I mean, Hendrix, for example, is, is who comes off extremely well in the book, I must say, um, unlike a few others. Um, but he's quite drawn to her, as perhaps is Mick Jagger. Well, I think that what Lola was doing was speaking to them as real people. You know, Lola wasn't really... She was a rock music journalist and... 1967 really probably was one of the most important years in terms of rock music. It was a revolutionary time in many, many senses. But Lola wasn't really interested in rock music or its history. She was just there to write stories about these people. 
and she certainly wasn't overwhelmed or overawed by celebrity. You know, something about having two parents who were, were imprisoned in Nazi ghettos and then in Nazi death camps made idolising a rock star seem almost absurd. So Lola approached them as she would approach anybody interesting. You know, when you meet somebody who you find interesting, you want to know who they are, especially if that's your job. And I think that in in painting the portraits of the, the people that I focused on, Mick Jagger, Janis Joplin, you know, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Mama Cass, Cher, I think I tried to paint as truthful a portrait I could of these people because it's very easy to imagine that they're not like you, but the truth is we are all like each other. And Jimi Hendrix was, in fact, highly intelligent, very sensitive, um, very thoughtful man. Did, did you interview him yourself? I interviewed everybody I wrote about in the book and hundreds more, I hate to tell you. <laughs> I mean, I toured with the Trogs, and you do not want to hear wild things sung every night. <laughs> well, my generation, um, Pete Townsend comes off pretty badly as well. Yes, I mean, yeah, he does. He doesn't come off as the most charming man on the planet. <laughs> and and Jim Morrison, oh, he's very um, vacant and chillingly soulless. Yes, I think that's how Lola saw him and I think she possibly was not alone in that view of him. Yes, so I know this is fiction and we've spoken before about the way readers are always seeking, um, often wrongly, to find the autobiographical in fiction. Um, But Lola Bensky really does follow some of the contours of your life, right down to the initials and the protagonist's name. Yes, I like that. I like both of us being LB. (laughs) Something really sort of familiar about it, because I I referred to her as LB in shorthand all the time I was writing it. and I enjoyed that. Look, of course, there's, of course, there are parallels. I mean, there are huge parallels between my life and Lola Bensky's life. But I'm not. There's part of me in Lola Bensky, and there's there's a part of me in every character I have ever written. I mean, there's a part of me in these two Orthodox Jewish private detectives who turn up three, you know, much to my surprise, three quarters of the way through Lola Bensky. I mean, they are part of me that. They're both hopeless. One of them, Harry, um, is agoraphobic. He cannot go outside, so he has to do all the, all the work on the computer. And Shlomo is obsessed with the weather, has terrible dandruff and a bad sense of direction and looks so bewildered when he's following a suspect that they often turn around and ask him, can they help him? They are part of me as much as... Eric, Lola's father, is part of me. Mm. I think the reason why people try to isolate out, you know, what is a real fact and what is a piece of fiction is is a very misguided search because it, what you have to remember is it is a novel, but it's a novel with as much honesty as I could muster. Yes, there's always crafting and picking and choosing as well. And uh, and I suppose Lola took her own turns, didn't she, as you were writing her? I mean, even if you started with the basic contours. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, characters grow. I'm, I'm not sure that... 
I couldn't plot a character out to every tray and every detail. You know, characters grow and develop, and they very often surprise you, and something that you thought would end this way ends diametrically opposite way, and it feels right. I mean, that's part of the thrill of writing, is, you know, the uncertainty and the lack of control, in a sense. But do you think there's there's too great an emphasis from the, the public, if you like, from the general population on the fact as being a way to truth? That people are too key keen to you know, to see things as having really happened? Um, no, I don't I don't perceive that at all. I think it's just a normal human curiosity. I think that if if a piece piece of fiction rings true to you, then it's true. You know, if the truth of the characters comes through to you, then it is the truth of them. Mm. Yes. Now, um, you've become somewhat known for your black humor, and uh, and we talked a little about the humor in the book as well. There's a long line of this kind of gallows humor, um, from Jack Benny through to Seinfeld, and, and Lola too is is quite droll at times. Yes, and I think that having a sense of humor really can save people. I think laughing is one of the best things you can do. And when people tell me that they were reading my book on a bus or a train and they started laughing, I'm thrilled when audiences laugh at something I've written. I'm so thrilled. I think that laughter is a really crucial part of life. You know, I think you have to be able to cry in life and you have to be able to laugh. You know, One of them is not enough. You're missing something. Yes, it's quite a powerful way to deal with oppression or hardship too, isn't it? Well, I think it's just a naturally life-affirming thing to do. I mean, for me personally, it's been my saving grace. I can look at something I've done and I can think, oh, wow. And I can start laughing because, you know, it's such a dumb thing to have done. Now, speaking of humor, you you talked about um, Shlomo and the detective agency. As I was reading it, it's, it's almost a kind of mise en abeam, you know, sort of book within the book. Uh, I felt I wanted more of it. Um, do, do, are you tempted to, to pull that out and actually write those detective stories? You know how many people have said that to me. And when I finished writing them, I, I didn't want to write any more of them because it was too close to the end of the book. And you can't go off into too large a tangent before the end of the book. But I so missed them, um, and I had such fun writing them that I was really tempted to try to bring them back somewhere else. You mentioned earlier that uh, it was a kind of surprise to you that they they sort of popped up on Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of people pop up when you're not expecting them. When I was writing Too Many Men, I was three quarters of the way through it, you know, approximately, I don't know exactly, but somewhere like that. And I was on the treadmill, I exercise in the morning because I know that I'm just going to sit still for hours, you know, the rest of the day. And suddenly, Sophia and Valentina, two Polish women, just came into my head and played a very prominent role through the rest of the book. And I don't know who would have turned up if they hadn't turned up, but they just turned up and I could see them straight away. Um, And that has happened to me. I took them them into another book as well. So that has often happened to me. Things just come into your head, and I'm I'm so grateful for that. 
for the power of the subconscious. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But they're a little different from your, you know, the, the the types of things that you tend to write. Um, so I guess it would be quite a change to to delve into those stories. But you're halfway there. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so they're very uh, appealing sort of characters. Yeah, I love them. So tell me a little about the structure of the book. Um, it, it, it is progressive mostly, but there is one slip back to the Monterey Festival. Yes. And I don't think books have to be chronological in any sense. You know, I just wrote it in the way that made most sense to me. You know, and, and again, it's not a thing I sit and think about for a long time. Um, it's it's totally instinctive. Mm. And I suppose it does, it is quite interesting to have, you know, got to a certain point in Lola's life and then to go back to the youthful Lola and see those connections and links. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that's why I wanted to leap ahead and then go back. So um, tell me a little bit more about what you're working on now. Is there a new book in the works? Yeah, there is, yeah. I'm never going to leave um, a long time between books again. Yeah, there's a new book in the works. and. While I don't like to talk about it, I can say it's about two elderly men, which doesn't sound very interesting in itself, but <laughs> they are very, very good characters or interesting characters. And they live, their neighbours in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And so the book is set partly in Manhattan and partly in parts of China. One of them is Jewish and one of them is Chinese. And they do a lot of things together every day. They're not detectives, are they? No, they're not detectives. They're not detectives at all. You see how compelling that story idea is. I don't think your fans will let you leave it leave it alone. Well, it's really funny because uh, because I'm setting part of the book in China. I said to my husband, oh, look, I can bring Shlomo and Harry here. They'll never deal with the traffic, the traffic in Beijing and Shanghai. It's so shocking. And they would get lost one second after after they left the house, and Harry would never leave the hotel room. It's a funny um, turn, isn't it? I mean, we talked about you know the the correspondences between life and and the fictional world, but it's almost the opposite way around, isn't it? You've created these fictional characters, and then as you're doing things in your personal life, they're popping up, aren't they? And yes. uh, it's saying, you know, um, how how would he cope with this? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's exactly what happens. You know, I immediately imagined them in Shanghai or Beijing or Hangzhou and thinking, oh, they'd be better in Hangzhou because the you know, traffic situation's not as bad. All right. Um, look, we're, we're almost out of time, but uh, I just wanted to ask you about Lola's Jewishness. She gets asked often, you know, whether she's Jewish or not, and she almost always replies, very. Yes. What's the very? <laughs> well, I think that I think it's a Lola statement that there's no two ways about it. She is Jewish. Um, she grew up knowing exactly what happened to her family for no other reason other than they were Jewish, and she feels very Jewish. She might not be a religious Jew, but she knows she's very Jewish. You 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 don't live through all of that and not know how very Jewish you are. So you're working on a new book, um, and you're touring Lola Bensky. How's the tour going? Well, for, 
It's going very well for me um, because what happens is I'm, I get the chance to meet a lot of people who read my books and that's incredibly moving to me, just very powerfully moving and people say very tender things to me while I'm signing their books and I just feel very, very lucky to have experienced that and you know, I, I went to Germany before I came to Australia. I did a book tour in Germany. Then I did the one. I just got back last night from Australia. And I'm going to do one in Austria later in November because there's a stage adaptation of You've Got to Have Balls, which is called Hutzpah in German. That's opening in Vienna at the Josefstadt Theatre on November the 22nd. So... That's my last bit of touring for the year, but that's going to be pretty exciting. Um, that that um, The stage play stars Otto Schenk, and I'm very excited about that. So that will be my last bit of touring, and from then on I'll be sitting in one place writing. I like that translation of chutzpah as well. You've got to have balls. Yeah, it's actually, I think it's a lovely title. I think it's a much nicer title than the English title, um, I had a different title but changed it for yeah, somebody else's suggestion, something I regret. But chutzpah, I like it as a title. Yes. Is there an exclamation mark at the end? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not keen on exclamation marks. I hardly <laughs> ever use them. I don't like them. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Uh, and it sounds like it's um, it, it's going to be a, a fantastic play. We'll have to look out for that. Um so that's all we have time for today. But Lily, thank you so much for joining me. And um, you sound quite fresh for being just back in New York. I hope that that lag's not too bad. It wasn't. No, no. I feel. I feel. I feel surprisingly okay. <laughs> so thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Lola Bensky or Lily Brett's many other books, uh, you can find her at www.lilybrett.com. And don't forget to tune in next month when we interview Gillian Shedneck, who will be dropping by to talk to us about her new book, Abu Dhabi Days, Dubai Nights. See you then. Bye. <laughs>